Chapter 9. July arrived with amazing speed. A show it was in many senses that we were putting on at St. Nick's, and I had never appreciated how much simple legwork went into mounting a show. To transport the young people through the enemy territory they were afraid of, we set up a system of special buses that would pick up each gang on its own turf and take it non-stop to the arena. Workers from the 65 sponsoring churches combed the streets, alerting gang members to the arrangements. I made my last trip home to see Gwyn just before the crusade began. David, she said, I'm not going to pretend that I didn't wish you were home for the new baby. I know. It was a subject we didn't mention often. My mother-in-law was provoked at me for going away just when the baby was due. She told me that we men were all the same and that true Christianity started at home, that if I didn't have better respect for my wife, I didn't deserve her, which remarks stung all the more because they contained an element of truth. But Dave, Gwen went on, babies have been born before without the father's assistance. The doctor wouldn't let you hold my hand anyhow, and that's what I'd want. So I'd miss you even if you were in the next room. You feel you've got to go, don't you? Yes. Then go gladly, and God be with you, David. I left Gwen standing in the yard waving very large with child. When I saw her next, the miracle of birth would have occurred. I wondered if I would have new births to report to her, too. After the first four days of the meeting, I doubted it. We'd been so busy getting ready that the letdown of the rally itself was all the harder to take. Rally? The very word suggests swarms of enthusiastic people... Nothing could be further from the case. On the fourth night, a hundred people showed up. The arena will hold 7,000. I remember standing at a little window on the balcony where I watched teenagers arrive without being seen myself. Each night I'd hoped for a breakthrough. Each night, only a handful of people straggled off the special buses and made their way into the arena. I went backstage. The counselors and youth workers from the churches were all standing around on one foot and then the other, trying to find encouraging words. You know, it wasn't numbers that count, Davy. It's quality, not quantity. But we all knew we were getting neither quality nor quantity. The teenagers who did come came for a show. It was difficult talking to an empty auditorium with the youngsters blowing smoke rings in your face and making lewd remarks. The worst of it was that the kids called breaking up. Whenever they didn't understand something or didn't believe it, they began to laugh. I got so I dreaded to go out on the platform for fear of that laughter. The fourth night was the worst I'd ever known it. I did my best to build the meeting to a certain pitch of dignity and solemnity, and then all of a sudden one of the ringleaders snickered. Someone else picked it up, and before I could stop it, the whole bunch of them were holding their sides with laughter. I cut the meeting short that night and went home brokenhearted and ready to quit. Lord, I said in real anger, we're not even beginning to reach these boys and girls. What am I supposed to do? And as always, why is it I have to learn this again every time? When I really asked... I was really answered. I met little Jojo the next day in Brooklyn. Jojo was pointed out to me as the president of the Coney Island Dragons, one of the largest gangs in the city. The boy who pointed him out wouldn't introduce us. Little Jojo might not like it, Dave. So I walked up to this boy alone and stuck out my hand. Jojo's first act was to slap me across the palm. Then he leaned over and spit on my shoes. In the gangs, this is the highest sign of contempt. He walked away and sat down on a bench with his back to me. I walked over and sat beside him. I said... Jojo, where do you live? Preacher, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. But I want to have something to do with you, I said. I'm going to stay here until I find out where you live. Preacher, said Jojo, you're sitting in my parlor. Well, where do you go when it rains? He said, I moved down to my suite in the subway. Jojo had on a pair of old canvas shoes. His toe was sticking out on the right foot and... 
He had a dirty black shirt on and two big pair of khaki trousers. He looked down at my shoes. They were brand new, and right then I was remembering Grandpap's muddy boots and kicking myself for being a fool. Jojo said, Look, rich man, it's all right for you to come here to New York and talk big about God changing lives. You've got new shoes, and you've got a suit of clothes that match. Look at me. I'm a bum. There are ten kids in my family. We're on relief. They kicked me out. There wasn't enough food to go around. Jojo was right. Then and there on the public park bench, I took off my shoes and asked him to try them on. What's the gimmick? What are you trying to prove? That you got hard or something? I'm not going to put your stinking shoes on. You've been griping about shoes. Put them on, Jojo said. I never had new shoes. Put them on. So, suddenly Jojo put on the shoes. Then I got up and walked away. I walked down the street in my stocking feet about two blocks to the car. It was quite a circus, people looking and laughing, and just as I got to the car, little Jojo came up behind me and said, You forgot your shoes. They're your shoes. I got in the car. Preacher, Jojo said, reaching inside the open window. I forgot to shake your hand. So we shook, then I said, Look, you don't have any place to live. I'm bumming a bed myself right now, but there's a couch out in the living room. Maybe the folks who took me in will take you in too. Let's go ask them. Okay, said Jojo, just like that. Jojo got in, and we drove to the apartment. Mrs. Ortez, I said, a little hesitantly, this is the president of the Coney Island Dragons. Jojo, I'd like you to meet the lady who is putting me up for a while, since I can't afford any place to sleep just like you. Then I asked Mrs. Ortez if Jojo could stay with me for a few days in her home. She looked at her two little children, and she looked at the switchblade sticking out of Jojo's pocket, and she very kindly went over and put her arm around him and said... Jojo, you can sleep on the couch. It was a brave thing, as anyone knows who has worked with these potentially violent boys. I took Jojo aside and said, Your clothes stink. We're in a home now, and we're going to have to do something. I've got eight dollars. We'll go to an Army-Navy store and get you a shirt and a pair of trousers. So I put on my old pair of shoes and took Jojo downstairs and into the nearest Army-Navy store we could find. He went into the back room of the store to change and simply left his old clothes where he stepped out of them. On the way back home, Jojo looked at his reflection in every store window. Not bad. Not bad, he said over and over. So far, what I had done with Jojo was similar to what any social agency might have done, and it was no doubt a good thing that this boy at last had a pair of shoes and a shirt, and that that night he didn't have to sleep in the subway. But at heart, Jojo was very much the same boy. It took a change in me to bring about a change in Jojo, and this change has affected both our lives ever since. That evening at St. Nick's was as bad as ever. There was the usual breaking up, laughing, jeering. There were the usual fistfights and threats. There were the same suggestive gestures on the part of the girls and the same lewd responses on the part of the boys. Jojo was there watching it all. He came out of curiosity, but he wanted me to know that he thought the whole thing was a lot of rot. Afterward, on the back, on the way back to the Ortez apartment, I was silent. I'd been hurt by the lack of response, and actually, behind the wheel of the car, I was sulking. Preach. You're trying too hard. It came just like that. Without warning and from a homeless boy who pretended to be callous through and through came a penetrating, wonderful piece of insight. The impact of those words was immense. They went through me as if they had been spoken by God himself. I turned to stare at Jojo so abruptly. He thought I was angry and he raised his arm in defense. Of course, I had been out there trying to change lives. I wasn't bringing the Holy Spirit to the gangs. I was bringing Dave Wilkerson. 
Even in giving Jojo a pair of shoes, I had been out in front. I knew in that moment that I would never be able to help Jojo. I would never be able to help the gangs. All I could do was make an introduction, then step aside. You're trying too hard. The sudden insight brought a great burst of laughter that seemed to unsettle Jojo. Cut it out, preacher. I'm laughing, Jojo, because you've helped me. From now on, I'm not going to try so hard. I'm going to step aside and let the spirit come through. Jojo was silent for a while. He cocked his head. I don't feel nothing, he said. Nothing at all. I, I don't expect to feel nothing either. We didn't speak again until we got upstairs to the hotel's apartment. Then suddenly again, with that direct way he has, little Jojo was making me a deal. Look, Davy, you got a kid coming, right? I told Jojo that Gwyn would be going to the hospital. The baby might be born any time. And you say there's a God and he loves me, right? That's right, I said. All right. If there is a God and if I pray to him, he'll hear my prayers, right? Absolutely. All right. What do you want, a boy or a girl? I could see the trap coming, but I didn't know what to do about it. Now look, Jojo, prayer isn't a slot machine where you put the right coin in and out comes the candy. In other words, you're not so sure about this God business either. Ah, I didn't say that at all. What do you want, boy or girl? I admitted that since we already had two girls, we were hoping for a boy. Little Jojo listened. Then he did a thing that was as hard for me as it was for Moses to strike the stone in the desert and ask water to come out. Little Jojo said a prayer. Now, God, if you are up there and if you love me, give this preacher a boy. That was Jojo's prayer. It was a real one, and when he finished, he was blinking hard. I was flabbergasted. I ran into my bare little bedroom, and I began to pray as I hadn't prayed since I had been in New York. Jojo and or the Ortezes were sound asleep when the telephone call came at 2.30 that night. I was still praying. I went out to the phone. It was my mother-in-law. David, she said, I couldn't wait until tomorrow to call. I just had to tell you that you're a father. I couldn't bring myself to ask the question, David, David, are you there? I'm here. Don't you want to know whether it was a boy or a girl? More than you know. David, you've... Got a great, big, strapping, ten-pound son. Of course, the skeptics will point out that there was a 50-50 chance of little Jojo's prayer coming true, just statistically. But something else was going on that night, something too deep for statistics. When I went in and woke Jojo with the news, he scratched his head. What do you know? He said. What do you know about that? What do you know? Before the night was over, Jojo was a changed boy. It began with tears. Jojo cried the bitterness out, and he cried the hatred out. He cried out the doubts and the fears, too. And when he was all through, there was room for the kind of love the Christian knows, which doesn't depend on parents or preachers, or even upon prayers being answered in the way we think they should be answered. From that day on, Jojo had a love that was his for always, and he had taught me a lesson that was mine for always. We humans can work hard for each other, and we should and we must work. But it is God and only God who heals.